0: This Parsha podcast is sponsored by Bernard Suisa in honor of his wife Rivka, in deep appreciation for what she does for the whole family and admiration for her strength and courage to fight for what is right. Now Bernard also added a message of chizuk, of encouragement from our Parsha that I think can help anyone when they are down. And he says, it's important to remember that in our Parsha, the Jewish people entered a period of darkness, but it was only to elevate them to the highest of heights. So we thank Bernard for his support and his friendship and for this important and poignant message. And what an amazing lesson it is. I'm thinking, as I'm reflecting on Bernard's point, that this is really the story of our Parsha. In our Parsha, of course, we have the great privilege of, an opportunity to start the book of Exodus, to start the book of Shmos with Parsha Shmos. But it's a little bit of a downer of a Parsha. The nation begins a rapid decline. We left off last week. We had Jacob and his 12 sons, and Joseph was a king in Egypt. And now all these sons have passed, and the nation is succumbing to, to enslavement, they're suffering with oppression, and things get worse. There's infanticide, and there's despair. Pharaoh tries to get the Jewish midwives to murder babies, and then the Jewish babies are thrown into the Nile, and even the Egyptian ones, and things just really spiral out of control. The nation is at a very low nadir. In our parasha, we also read how Pharaoh died, but Rashi tells us that he suffered from leprosy, And the way that he tried to cure his leprosy was with the murder of 300 Jewish babies every day, 150 in the morning, 150 at night, and he would bathe in their blood. And it's a sad parsha, You know, you read it, and it's it's overwhelmingly painful to read about what the Jewish people had to endure. But in chapter 2, we read about Moshe. Moshe is the bright light that's going to change everything. And he has a very fortuitous origination story how he ends up being raised by Pharaoh and Pharaoh's family, Pharaoh's daughter, in the palace, and then he is wanted for murder, has to escape. We know the story. But then he has the episode with the burning bush. Moshe's selected. He's been chosen to go save the Jewish people. And of course, much of our parsha deals with The negotiations and the back and forth and the long series of objections that Moshe presents. He doesn't want to go. He's humble. He wants other people to lead this effort. But eventually, he heads down to Egypt. He gets his father-in-law Jethro's approval. He rendezvous with Aaron at Mount Sinai. They get to Egypt and they coalesce all the elders and armed with the miracles That God gave him the staff that turns into a serpent and the water that he poured onto the ground and it turns into blood and the head, you stick it into your garment and it turns leprous and he appears before Pharaoh. Now, if you stopped reading the story at this point, at this juncture in the Parsha, and you had to guess what happened next, you may say, that, well, Pharaoh was moved by all these miracles and the exodus began. You know, back in the day when I was in Israel and yeshiva, one of the yeshivas that I had the great privilege of studying at was a yeshiva that catered to a wide variety of students. They had some more veteran students, people who grew up with a very strong background in Jewish knowledge and observance and learning. And they also had students who had never studied Talmud before, Maybe couldn't even read Hebrew, had a very minimal background in Jewish learning. And all these different students from different backgrounds were all under the same roof. And I remember there was a student there and he had never read the Torah. Could you imagine? You have advanced students studying Talmud and Maimonides and the advanced commentaries, fluent in Aramaic and even some Yiddish. And then you have These other kids that show up and they don't know anything. But when they are exposed to Torah, it changes everything. They say, I want to study. I want to get involved. I too want the great privilege of studying in yeshiva. But I remember one of these students told me, he's like, I never heard the Torah. And I don't know what happens next. Every week he would read the parasha. And he would find out for the first time, what happened with Joseph? Oh my goodness, what's happening with Joseph? what the brothers do? And you see, of course, we who are fortunate enough to have been trained with this, we grew up with these stories, we do lose a little bit of that excitement, of that novelty, just how wonderful and enchanting these stories are. But imagine this was the first time you're reading it. And you read about this really horrific decline of the nation, but now you you read Moshe, we're introduced to Moshe, and he's coming before Pharaoh, and he's doing the miracles, and you stop there, and you say, okay, well, things are going to improve. We've reached the bottom, and now it's time to, once again, begin the ascent. But of course, the exact opposite happened. Pharaoh was totally unmoved by Moshe's presentation. And not only does he not release the Jewish people, he intensifies the work. He orders the taskmasters to maintain the workload, to maintain the daily brick quota, but without giving the slaves the ingredients to produce those bricks. In the event that there were holes in the wall, the bricks weren't filled, they would take a Jewish baby and cement the baby into the wall, these barbarians. Can you imagine Moshe? He didn't want the job. God convinced him over his objections to go do it. And instead of having a positive effect on the poor, depressed slaves, their situation gets worse. And Moshe is totally dejected. And this is really how our parsha ends. Our parsha ends on a very down note because we thought we had the solution. It turns out it exacerbated the problem instead of improving it. Imagine your Moshe. You're persuaded to go help your brethren. And instead, things get worse. The people are being tortured and persecuted in a horrific fashion. And it's really, you could say, at least legitimately claim that it's your fault. You made things worse. Why'd you have to come stir the pot? What does God say? Don't worry. This is all part of the plan. That's really how our parsha ends. 5.23, chapter 5, verse 23. Moshe returns to God and says, Why'd you do this to me? Why did you send me to go worsen the situation of the nation? I came to Pharaoh. I spoke to him your words, the exact formula that you told me to speak to him. And not only did you not save the nation, they got worse. The situation worsened. And chapter 6, verse 1, which is the final verse of our parsha, Vayomer Hashem el Moshe, God said to Moshe, don't worry, you're going to see what's going to happen. I will take you out of Egypt with a strong hand, and Pharaoh will banish you from the land with a strong hand. And every year, you know, it bothers me. Moshe's asking a very pointed question. You sent me to improve the situation of the Jewish people, to save them. And instead, things got worse. And God does not seem to be addressing the question. The question seems to remain, why indeed did God make it worse? So perhaps we can speculate an answer to Moshe's question. We know the Jewish people, the prophecy to Abraham told us in chapter 15 of Genesis, You should surely know that your descendants will be foreigners, enslaved in foreign land, they'll be enslaved, they'll be tormented and oppressed for 400 years. In reality, the Jewish people only spent 210 years in Egypt. So there is a theory that says that – well, if you look at Rashi, Rashi tells us that, well, the 400-year clock starts from the birth of Isaac. Isaac is the first of Abraham's progeny, and therefore it's already kind of getting underway, so to speak, even though the descent to Egypt has not actually happened, but the people, the chess pieces are in place – And therefore, we could already start the clock a little bit earlier. 400 years is actually to the day of the birth of Isaac is the exodus. That's one answer. But it's not just a 400-year clock, it's a 400 years of suffering that was promised to Abraham. So one of the answers, one of the theories is that the Almighty condensed and compressed the additional 190 years of suffering from when he appointed Moshe. He appointed Moshe in the year 209, really, of the enslavement. And Moshe goes to go save the Jewish people. Instead, things get worse, but really, things got better. Because that last year, or the last few months, really, it was, there was such an intensification of the suffering that that actually was a fulfillment, so to speak, Of the last 190 years, and therefore, by suffering for a few months, the nation was spared 190 years of suffering, and that actually paved the way for the salvation. So when my friend Bernard wants to share a message with the Parsha podcast, it's always darkest before dawn, redemption starts when things get worse we're not capable of figuring out is it good news or is it bad news because Moshe seems to diagnose bad news and God says, no, 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 it's actually good news. That's really the lesson of the Parsha. In fact, the Baal Shem Tov said something fascinating. The Talmud tells us in two different ways that the Almighty only does good things to us. In one version... This is from the Talmud, the book of Brachos, page 60b, on the bottom. This is a quote of Rabbi it. Everything God does is ultimately for good. It may seem bad. It may look awful at the time. Your animal died. Your light was extinguished. No one wants to invite you to their house. Bad things are happening to you, but ultimately... It's for a good purpose. There's a second version of this idea, a second Jewish aphorism featured in the Talmud. This is from the book of Titus, page 21a, and that is Gam Zu This is also for good. Something bad happens, you say, this is also for good. Gam Zu even this, which appears to be very bad, is also for good. Well, Shemtov explains that these are slightly different. When you say that everything God does is ultimately for the best, you could perhaps intend to mean, yes, something bad happened, but it's worth it. Because in the end, the net result of it all will be positive. So yes, I'm willing to absorb. I'll take the loss. I'll take the suffering because ultimately what I will gain will outweigh what I lost, what I forfeited. Comes along the Talmud and tells us there's another angle to this. Gam, zu, Latova. even the suffering that you think apparently ostensibly is suffering is in fact also good. You can't see it. You don't know how it's good. But there is no bad. It's not like you'll take the bad to get the good. Even the bad, Gamzu, even the bad is Latova. So we thank our friend Bernard for his sponsorship of the Parsha podcast, but also for capturing one of the central lessons of the Parsha. Like I said, we often can't really differentiate between good news and bad news. Sometimes things have to get worse in order to get better, and even those things that are bad, if we could zoom out and have a much broader perspective of what's actually happening, we will discover Gamzulatova, that is also good. See how amazing the Parsha Podcast family is? We get treated to these amazing crowd-sourced lessons. If you want to share a lesson, or an idea, send me an email, rabbiwobajimba.com, and also, before we begin, the actual Parsha podcast, my prepared notes, if you will. The end of the calendar year is approaching. If you want to squeeze in a donation to Torch before the end of the year, you want to support the amazing work of Torch of the Parsha podcast in 2021. Of course, in 2022, we're going to have a big fundraiser, as I've spoken about in the past. But if you still want to get in the opportunity to partner with us to support the great work of Torch in 2021, visit our website, torchweb.org, or click the donate link in the podcast description. Now, is there anything else we need to do before we get started? Is there anything else? I almost forgot. The five-star reviews. Today's review is authored by the unusually named V-S-N-X-H-X-N-D. That's the username. It sounds like one of those usernames that you get when you clean your keyboard for for Pesach. You just put your hand across the keyboard, and whatever comes out, that is what appears on the screen. So whoever this person is, they wrote a weekly joy, Five stars. These episodes light up my week. The enthusiasm in your voice always makes me smile, and I have deeply enjoyed the truly exquisite insights your interpretations offer. Thank you so much, VSNXHXND. If this actually stands for something, I totally missed it. You can let me know in an email what the symbolism behind that unusual username is. Okay, let's get started. Let's begin. This is the Please God penultimate Parsha podcast of 2021. With the help of the Almighty, we haven't missed a single week. I thank you for your support and listenership and incredible enthusiasm throughout the year. In chapter 3 of the book of Exodus, we read about the episode of the burning bush. It starts off by telling us, this is verse 1, Moshe was a shepherd. Like a lot of great people, we've talked about this in the past, a lot of great people are shepherds. And he is leading the flock in the wilderness to not steal from anyone, and he arrives at a mountain that is Mount Sinai. And an angel of God appears to him in a fire, a fire in a bush, a burning bush. And he sees, and something very unusual he notices, there's a fire, and the fire is burning ferociously, but it's not consuming the bush. And Moshe says, let me see what's going on over here. Let me investigate what's happening. Why is the bush not being consumed by the conflagration? And we read in verse four, and God saw that Moshe went to go inspect, and God called him from amidst the bush and said to him, Moshe, Moshe, here I am, take off your shoes, this is holy and sacred ground, and God begins the conversation with him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, etc., and the dialogue begins. So first of all, there's an amazing Rashi over here. Rashi asks the question, why was God, so to speak, in a bush? Of all the trees, God could have been in any tree. Why in the bush? It says Rashi, Mishum Imo Anochi Batsara, to indicate that God is with us in our pain. The Jewish people are suffering. They're enslaved. They are recipients of war crimes at the hands of the Egyptians. And God, so to speak, is also suffering alongside of us. He, so to speak, his presence is taken in a bush, in a small, lowly bush, not a tall cedar tree, a tall sequoia tree, a small, lowly, thorny bush. That's how, so to speak, God behaves When we're suffering, we wanted the misery to end. We cried out in anguish. We were suffering, and God suffered alongside us. I'm with you in your pain. God also wanted the misery to end. Similarly, we're going to read this in a couple of weeks, in the end of Parshas Mishpatim, this is talking about the Mount Sinai experience, And the seven, the elders who ascend the mountain, up to a certain point. And the description that we read of what they saw, they saw God, whatever that means, and underneath his feet, whatever that means, was the likeness of brickwork. So whatever vision they had of God had brickwork in it. And again, Rashi explains, the Jewish people were enslaved with bricks. And therefore, so to speak, the Almighty, whatever this means, again, theologically, it's hard for us to understand what exactly our sages are telling us. But the message for us is, when we're suffering, God, so to speak, suffers as well. When we're forced to have to make bricks, so to speak, that's not lost by God. There is brickwork, so to speak, with God as well. We're suffering. He suffers alongside us. He's empathizing with us by having his presence in a thorny bush, in a small little lowly bush, and there's brickworts as well with God. Talmud tells us when a Jew suffers, even if that Jew is a criminal, even if that Jew is a convicted felon, a convicted murderer, The Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, again, whatever this means, whenever we talk about theology, we have to understand that this is all an analogy for us. The Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, is suffering alongside that person. It's an amazing thing. A hardened criminal, the criminal is being executed for a horrific and egregious crime, but the pain of the criminal, so to speak, is felt by the Almighty on high. This is the Divine Behavior. Our sages tell us, why was God in a bush, not in an oak tree or a cedar or a sequoia, something more impressive than the lowly, thorny bush? He is suffering with us. Similarly, underneath God is brickwork. God, so to speak, suffered alongside the Jewish people. And this raises an interesting question. God, of course, is completely all-powerful. His power has no limitations. He is omnipotent. He could have stopped all the suffering. But he didn't. Why didn't God stop it? What was he waiting for? Why did God allow us to suffer so much? Of course, he's not indifferent to our pain. It registered. The brickwork, the bush. Of course, however we understand that theologically. It registered. Those Brits weren't just here with us, the slaves suffering here. It wasn't heaven. We weren't suffering alone. God suffered, whatever that means, as well. So why didn't he stop it earlier? So, of course, this is an easy question to answer. You could say, well, he did stop it earlier because it happened 190 years before it was supposed to conclude. Also, it's not such a great question because it's really really unanswerable question. Even if God stopped it 50 years earlier, you would have the same question. God should have stopped it even earlier. So it's an unanswerable question. But nevertheless, when we look at the commentaries, we find something absolutely amazing. Chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. Moshe says, let me stop. I see an unusual thing here. There's a bush on fire, but the fire is not consuming the bush. Verse 4, And God sees that Moshe stopped to look, and therefore God called out to him, From amidst the bush, and said to him, Moshe, Moshe, by God saw that Moshe turned to look at the burning bush, and therefore he called out to him. It seems, just by reading the verse, that it was Moshe's curiosity, his interest in pursuing the unusual spectacle of a burning bush not being consumed by the fire. That is what triggered the Almighty calling out to him and initiating this prophecy. And the Medrash says this clearly. In the Medrash Parsha 15 2, Rabbi Yochanan, Amar, Rabbi Yochanan says, Moshe took three steps towards God. Says Rabbi Shimon Ben-Lakish, Moshe didn't take any steps towards God. He just turned his head. And God said, you took the time and the pain and the effort to look, to investigate, to pursue, to examine what's going on with this burning bush. I promise that I will make you worthy of prophecy, And therefore, because Moshe turned to look, either he walked three steps, or he just turned his head, took an interest in it, he made a move, God says, I'm calling out to you, Moshe, Moshe, This is an amazing Midrash. Moshe initiated prophecy, he took the first step, and that's why God, indeed, gave him the full-fledged prophecy. If you look at the commentary of this foreigner, he says the same kind of idea. Haboleh if someone comes to try to achieve purity, he will be aided from above. Moshe wanted purity. Moshe wanted prophecy. Moshe wanted a relationship. And Moshe pursued it. And God said, okay, Moshe, Moshe, where are you? I'm ready. Similarly, at Mount Sinai, the verse says, "Um Moshe Moshe ascended to God, and then God called out to him. It's an amazing thing here. Moshe is ready for prophecy. He has been trained well. He has demonstrated his credentials. Nevertheless, to actualize that prophecy, he has to take the first step himself. Both by his first prophecy, burning bush, and by his greatest prophecy, the Mount Sinai Revelation, Moshe has to initiate. He has to take the first step. And this is a principle we see in many places, both in the Exodus story and in Jewish literature more broadly. We all want, nay, we all need our relationship with the Almighty. We want it. We need it. And He also wants it. The Almighty is our Creator. He is a and He loves us like a father. He loves us like a parent, only more than a parent. And He wants to give us everything. But there's a principle. We always have to make the first step if you want the purity you can get as much of it as you want but you have to take that first step and you have to initiate you have to start and only then will you unlock that divine aid once you make the first move you're unlocking tremendous unlimited divine bounty There's an incredible Midrash. The Midrash says, if you open up for me a hole the size of a pinhole, I will open up for you a grand hall, an auditorium that everything can fit through. When we are inspired from below, it could be a tiny little bit of inspiration. Moshe turned his head. Moshe made a small tiny move that opens up the gateways of heaven as wide and as broad as possible. There is precedent for this. We read about it a couple of weeks ago, Parshas Vayetze. If you remember, we talked about Jacob and the accelerated journey of Jacob. He left Canaan, went all the way to Haran, and then he was inspired and said, Oh no, I went and I passed by the place where our forbearers, my forbearers, prayed, and I didn't pray, he turned around and right away a miracle happened and God accelerated his journey. Same kind of idea. God did not stop Jacob and say, oh, you're passing by here? It's time to pray? No. If you're not inspired, if you don't make that first move, God will not awaken you. You will remain fast asleep. But once you awaken and arouse yourself a little bit, You say, I want to become pure. I want to make a small little pinhole in the vast separation and barrier separating me from God and me from my fellow man and me from my ambitions and my goals. You take a small little chisel and make a small little hole. You initiate this effort. Once you start it, all the miracles in the world will be availed to you. If you don't do it, if you don't have that inspiration on your own, God will not do it for you. Moshe leans in. Moshe begins to pursue the prophecy and boom, he unlocks all the blessings of the prophecy. Had Moshe not initiated, it seems to me, I think this is a very fair reading of the Midrash and really of the verse, It seems to me, had Moshe not turned around and said, what's going on over here? What can I do about it? What's the lesson for me? What does it mean that there's a burning bush here that's not being consumed? Had Moshe not done that, he would not have gotten the prophecy. That is how it works. This is how the system works. Yes, God wants exactly what we want. But he will, so to speak, sit on the sidelines until we make our move. Now, we're talking about Moshe's prophecy, but really every stage of the redemption follows this pattern. In our parsha, Parsha Shmos, chapter 2, verse 25, the Ramban tells us the Jewish people were suffering. Pharaoh died, he got leprosy, and the Jewish babies are being slaughtered, and the people can't handle it, and they cry out to God in despair. Says the Ramban, the time for the redemption had arrived. Nevertheless, without that prayer, without that initiation that comes from below, without the people calling out to God and saying, God help us, God wouldn't have done anything. You have to open up that pinhole. Even if it's a microscopic little hole, God will take that and transform that into a grand auditorium-sized, cavernous hole that everything that we want, everything that we need, and everything that we hope and aspire for can fit through. Moshe is amidst the negotiations with God, and he asks God, what do I tell the people when they say who sent you? Which name of God, so to speak, is operating over here? So God responds, Eke, Eke Asher Eke, which is how we pronounce the name of God, because we don't say God's name, of course, in vain. So we say Eke instead of the way it's actually spelled in scripture. What does this mean? What does this name represent? Says the Rabbin again. This is chapter 3, verse 13. I will be as I will be. I will be to you the same way you will be to me. If you start If you initiate, if you're invested in this, I too will be invested in it. If you're not interested, if you don't make your move, don't expect God to do anything either. With the actual Exodus, we're going to read about it in a couple of weeks. The Jewish people had to do a mitzvah. They had to do the pastoral offering in Egypt. And they had to hold the animal and guard the animal for four days. And Rashi tells us the Jewish people needed to do something. There had to be some sort of initiation from below, a mitzvah that we start, so to speak, this relationship between us and God. A mitzvah, of course, is a human seeking a connection with the divine. To have this exodus, you have to have a very strong bond with the divine, but that bond doesn't get built unilaterally. The way it gets built is by man. And when we say man, we mean humans. The humans initiating, even if it's a very little connection that they're fostering, a very little puncture in the vast labyrinthine barrier between them and God. But they take the first step, God will take some TNT and blow a hole, blast a hole in the Vast separation that exists between us and him. At the sea, God wanted to save the Jewish people. Surrounded by our enemies who want to kill us. Nachshon jumps in. Self-sacrifice. Embracing martyrdom. Man is inspired. God follows suit and splits the sea for us. The whole story of the Exodus from Moshe's initial prophecy... To God even considering Moshe, to the actual Exodus itself, to the name of God that's being operational over here, or that's ex- expressing itself, that's manifesting itself in the Exodus. This will be, see everything. Moshe's ascent to the mountain and the prophecy at Sinai, everything follows this pattern. You make a move, you take a small step towards God, and God will take a quantum leap towards you. Now, this principle, as you mentioned earlier, appears all over Jewish literature, not just with respect to the Exodus, but with respect to our entire spiritual agenda. The Talmud tells us the book of Yoma, page 39a. "Ada me'kadosh atzmo me'at. If a person makes themselves a little bit pure, me'kachin oso harbei. From heaven, they will purify him a lot. You make a small move, you undertake a small initiative of holiness, God from heaven above will amplify that and multiply that a thousandfold. Who is going to effectuate transformation? Who's going to bring about spiritual growth and change and transformation? It is a public-private partnership. We start it. We make a small, but genuine, but sincere, but real move. And God finishes it. How does repentance work? Again, the Talmud tells us repentance works by us making a small move towards God and God clearing away the entirety of our spiritual blemishes. We make the move from down below, and thereby we merit a sea, an ocean of assistance from above. But again, it has to be genuine. That pinhole has to be a real good pinhole. All the way through, we have to do something small but complete in order to evoke that tremendous divine assistance. My grandfather, blessed memory, when he was writing about this subject, he talked about the conscription of soldiers in war. This is something we read about in the book of Deuteronomy Dvarum. They conscript the soldiers and they tell them, don't be fearful of the enemy. Don't worry about them. For God, he is the one who's going to make war for you. He is going to fight in your behalf. You don't need to worry. What this means is, if you are worried, God won't fight in your behalf. How do you effectuate? How do you bring about the fact that God will fight for you? When you rely on him. If you say, God will fight for me, if you have that initial movement towards God, towards faith, towards reliance on God, God will, in fact, undertake an entire war effort on your behalf. Now, I mentioned that I think that this is a topical lesson. We are at the end of the calendar year. It's almost 2022. It's almost the time for a New Year's resolution. Now, of course, New Year's is not a Jewish holiday. We have our own calendar And it's not the Gregorian calendar, or for that matter, it's not the Julian calendar either. We have our calendar, and we have Rosh Hashanah, which is the first of our calendar year. Nevertheless, it's my belief that we should utilize every opportunity that we have for self-improvement, for character refinement, for transformation, for reflection, for assessment, for self-assessment and introspection. All those opportunities, in my opinion, should be embraced. And therefore, I think that this is a great opportunity to refocus our lives and recalibrate our lives, renew our efforts, figure out what we're living for, and try to design our life so we are headed in the right direction. And I think that the New Year's resolutions shouldn't be just about avoiding carbs or hitting the gym, our spiritual halves also can use a boost. Our relationship with God, our commitment to Torah, our spiritual vitality that is unlocked with prayer, our relationships with the people, our friends, our family, our spouses, our co-workers. What are we spending our time with? How are we making sure that we're utilizing the golden opportunity of life to try to get our soul back to where it came from to get an invitation to the afterlife? I feel like the new year is an opportunity to get a year off to a good start, to have a, you know, renewed and refreshed view on life, outlook on life. It's a time to make a deal with God. What do you need to do to make a change? What do you need to do to earn something? To change something? You need to follow this model. You need to realize that no one will do anything for you unless you do something for yourself. You have to get this started. No one else can help you. Whatever your problem is, and if I'm talking to humans, you have a problem. Because if you didn't have a problem, you'd be an angel. Everyone has problems. Everyone has things that they need to improve in. Everyone has aspirations and hopes that they have not quite yet accomplished. Because if you didn't, if there were no more opportunities for you, you wouldn't be here. You'd be in the land of the angels. So again, if I'm confirming, am I confirming this? Is there good Wi-Fi in heaven? I don't know. But I assume I'm talking mostly to humans. So to the humans in the audience, if you're a human, you have something that you can improve on. You have things that you need to change about yourself. You have problems that you want to resolve. How do you solve your problems? How do you accomplish those dreams and aspirations that you have? We have a model here. You have to make a move, a small move. You have to take a little pin, a small little window in your heart, the size of a pinhole, a teeny tiny opening, but a real one, a genuine one, a sincere one. And once you make that opening, and it's a good opening, and it's a secure opening, and it's goes all the way through, God will amplify your efforts a thousand fold. If you just do something, a small thing, open up your heart, God will open it a thousand times more. If you come for purity, that's what you want. Not just because that's what everyone else is doing. Because you're serious about life. You want to accomplish great things in life. You want to utilize the opportunities that you have in life. You want to live a little bit like a soul. You make a small move. You are guaranteed to get divine assistance. Moshe, Moshe, where are you? Let's go. Let's get this underway. Let's begin. Hineni, here I am. When I was looking in my grandfather's notes on this subject, he ended off with the following scary sentence. If a person sees... I'm just translating it freely here. If a person sees that they are not recipients of divine aid, they have to examine themselves if they actually got this started. Did they open a small window in their heart? Because if you did, you're going to get that support. Make the small move. Make a tiny move. Make a real move. You're going to get help. The cavalry is coming. Moshe made a move, and he got prophecy. Moshe made another move, and he got the prophecy at Sinai. The Jews made a move, they cried out to God, and they got redeemed. The Jews made another move, and the sea split. If you want holiness, make a move. If you want repentance, make a move. If you want divine aid, make a move find out what you want open up a small pinhole but make a move and provided that it's real and sincere you will be the recipient of a divine bounty of blessing now i want to reiterate what we said in last week's parsha podcast starting january 3rd on torchzoom.com at 7:30 central which makes it 8:30 eastern and 5:30 Pacific, I guess 6:30 Mountain Time, and wherever you are on the globe, again, I'm assuming that you're all on the globe here. If you're listening to this, wherever you are, you could sign into Torch Zoom and you could join the Musser Masterclass live. If you want to get the handouts, if you want to get the worksheets that go with the course, you have to sign in or sign up for it. The website's TorchWeb.org. In this podcast that you're listening to, Parshas Shamos, make your move. You will find in the description, in the podcast, you'll find a link to sign up. It's free. There is an opportunity if you want to submit a donation as well. It's not obligatory. It's a free course. 10 weeks starting January 3rd. It's a great opportunity to get 2022 off on the right foot. Okay, let's hit this week's exquisite insight. You ready? Exquisite insight. Let's begin. You know, maybe this is actually better titled, not exquisite insight, but it's more like instructive insight, because this is a very instructive idea I want to share with you from our Parsha. We mentioned that Pharaoh got leprosy and he was bathing in the blood of Jewish babies. This is the final verses of chapter 2 of Exodus. Starting from verse 23. In those days, verse says, the king of Egypt died, and the Jewish people, they suffered or they groaned from all the work, and they cried out to God, and their cry, their yelp, ascended to heaven from all the work, and God heard it. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw what was happening. And God knew. Now Rashi tells us, as we mentioned earlier, that the verse says that Pharaoh died. But what actually happened is that he was stricken with leprosy. And he would bathe in the blood of Jewish infants, 150 babies in the morning and 150 babies in the evening. Of course, it's a crazy thing, you know, such such cruelty, such barbarism. But I want to focus on an interesting question. We know that the greatest of the commentators, Rashi, always strives for the simplest interpretation of the verse. The verse says that Pharaoh died and the people suffered. And while it's true that the Talmud tells us that there are four people who are considered like they're dead. A blind person, an impoverished person, a childless person, a leprous person. And of course, what that means is a big subject. I feel like we've spoke about it in the past. Maybe one of the Parsha podcast archivists can dig it up. The writers are still on strike. It's something we've talked about in the past, but there's this idea that there are four people who are considered like they're dead. So there's a precedent to the idea that being afflicted with leprosy is, to a certain extent... Equivalent to death. But whenever there is a departure in Rashi's commentary from the simple interpretation of the verse, it demands an explanation. You read the verse, and it seems to be very understandable. There is an easy interpretation of what the verse is trying to tell us. The verse says, "Va'yehi ba'yamim melech Mitzrayim," and the king of Mitzrayim, the king of Egypt, va'yamas he died. That word universally means Vayamas, and he died. Again, it seems to be very self understood. Yerashi says, no, he didn't actually die. He got leprosy. And that caused the Jewish people to cry out because their infants were being murdered every day. But why change the meaning to something else when there is a readily easy And literal interpretation of the verse, why would Rashi change it? So I think it's a very instructive insight for anyone who is, you know, who wants to study in a more deep level and wants to study Rashi. It's always helpful to ask these kinds of questions because Rashi, again, is always going to opt for the simplest interpretation. And whenever the interpretation that Rashi gives us seems to be very not simple, it means that there has to be a reason why he felt that this actually means what he is, or at least the simplest interpretation of it is what he offers in his commentary. So I saw four answers to this question. And again, answering the question why when it says that Pharaoh died, it actually means he remained alive but was stricken with leprosy. Why is that the simplest interpretation of the verse? So one of the answers I saw, very basic answer, the verse doesn't talk about succession. Whenever Someone actually dies. A king actually dies. Scripture always tells us and was succeeded by such and such person, the next regent, the next king. Here, there is no mention of a replacement. It must be that actually, doesn't mean on a simple level that he died. It means that something else happened. He got leprosy. One answer. A second answer from the Sifsei who says, That if you look at the just the position of the verse, the verse says, and Pharaoh died, and the Jewish people suffered. The Jewish people cried. If it meant that he died simply, they should be very happy. Stalin is dead. Hitler is dead. Pol Pot and insert your favorite dictator is dead. Celebrate. The verse again tells us that because he died, it was a reason for suffering. And for anguish and cry, it must be that the simplest interpretation is that something else happened that compounded the pain. And we know that leprosy is a form of death. That's actually a simple interpretation based upon the Midrash that tells us he got leprosy and bathed in the blood of Jewish babies. The malbim gives is the third answer. The verse is introduced, Vayihibayamim haravimahim, it was in those many days, death is something that happens once. It's a one-time thing. Why does it say, in those many days, Pharaoh died? It must be, it was a different kind of death, a death that extended for many days. He had leprosy for a long time, and that is why it's a simple interpretation. And finally, the fourth answer, courtesy of the Goan of Vilna, he says that there's a policy that kings don't remain kings on their deathbed. In fact, when King David, the paradigmatic example of a king, the person who was forever called King David, the person who was the father of the monarchy, the Davidic monarchy, when he died, the verse says, ye may David Lamus." David is always called Hamel David, King David. David David the king, when he's about to die? David was about to die. There was no mention of the fact that David is a king. Ein Shilton, the verse tells us in Ecclesiastes, there is no control, there's no domineering in the day of death. Ultimately, everyone must bend the knee to God. And you know what? You could be a king your whole life. When you're about to die, you're a king no longer. Now you're a simply a subject of God like everyone else. The verse here says, Vayamas Melech Mitzrayim, the king of Egypt died. It must be that it was not a literal death because then he would never be called the king. It must mean that the simplest interpretation is that he remained alive, but he died because he got the leprosy. I think this is a very instructive insight it's not as exquisite as we aim for every week but i found it very instructive because again if we want to study rashi this is like the inner workings of how the study of rashi would go to ask these kinds of questions i hope you enjoyed it i hope you enjoyed this Parsha podcast i don't know like five percent of the pleasure that i got i hope you got thank you for listening thank you for being here for me for the Parsha podcast for torch the whole year the penultimate parsha Podcast, please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will do this again next week. Until then, have a great day. Have a fantastic week. Have a splendid and wonderful and terrific and sensational and exceptional Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, we will talk again next week for Parshas Va'era.